how are we doing? How are we doing with this interview? Looking now at my present, what do I perceive of my future? Do I remember those past experiences of captivity and deliverance? And with that in mind, do I have hope that I might emerge from my captivity into a glorious deliverance through the atonement of Christ? That's Alma's hope all along. He's not trying to shame us into change. He's not trying to force us. There's no compulsion here. That's why it's all questions in hopes that they will have a desire to change on their own. And how's that going to happen? Go back to verse 10. Because in the context of that original set of questions about captivity to deliverance, he lets us know how it happened. In verse 10, I ask of you, on what conditions are they saved? Let me ask it again. Yea, what grounds had they to hope for salvation? Let me ask it again. What is the cause of their being loosed from the bands of death and the chains of hell? What's he asking in those three question marks? Conditions, grounds, and cause. How does change happen? He answers the question in verse 11. Behold, I can tell you. He doesn't make him wait long. Did not my father Alma believe in the words which were delivered by the mouth of Abinadi? Was he not a holy prophet? Did he not speak the words of God and my father Alma believed them? Remember, that's what he talked about in those earlier verses. In verse 5, what delivered Alma and his people from Noah, from Amulon, from the Lamanites? He did deliver them out of bondage by the power of his word. Verse 7, he says it again. Their souls were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. It was God's word that delivered them. What does this chapter begin with in verse 1? Alma began to deliver the word of God unto the people. How does John 1 begin his gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. And by delivering Jesus to the people, there is hope for them to be saved. He is the conditions. He is the grounds. He is the cause of salvation. Verse 13, my father preached the word unto your fathers, just like Abinadi preached the word unto him. And a mighty change was wrought in their hearts. Because of that word and the effect that it had, they humbled themselves. They weren't stripped of pride. They removed it. They put their trust in the true and living God. The arm of flesh didn't have to be taken from them. They removed their trust from it themselves. They were faithful unto the end. Therefore, they were saved. It's the word that does it. In verse 12, according to his faith. Faith in what? Faith in the words that were given him. Faith in the words of Abinadi, faith in the words of Alma the elder, faith in the words of all the holy prophets, faith in the word of God. According to that faith, there was a mighty change wrought in his heart, in their hearts, in our hearts. So whether it's round one, Abinadi to Alma, whether it's round two, Alma the elder to his people at the waters of Mormon or the land of Helam or into the land of Zarahemla, or whether it's round three, Alma the Younger, delivering the word to the people of the church in Zarahemla. In any instance, if we exercise faith in that word, then a mighty change can occur in our hearts, especially when that faith facilitates its partner principle repentance. Faith unto repentance, we'll later read in the Book of Mormon often. That's the other solution that Alma is recommending. Faith in God's word, his promises, leading to repentance of our sins. He says that in verse 32. On the heels of all this talk about preparing to meet God, preparing quickly. In fact, 31, those who are not prepared, the time is at hand that he must repent or he cannot be saved. So in 32, the invitation, repent, repent, for the Lord God hath spoken it. 33, he sendeth an invitation unto all men, for the arms of mercy are extended towards them. He saith, repent, and I will receive you. I love the way he prefaces that call to repentance at the beginning of the verse. He sendeth an invitation 
We sometimes say that when somebody just won't do something and we'll just say, what, what do you need, an engraven invitation? I don't know where that phrase first came from, but it is interesting to ponder an engraven invitation. And so that when his arms of mercy are extended towards us, he who has engraven us upon the palms of his hands, as Isaiah says, then he is sending an engraven invitation to come. I will receive you. What better evidence of that can I offer? Repent, I will receive you. In verse 49, that invitation is to all, to everyone that dwelleth in the land, yea, to all, both old and young, both bond and free, to the aged, to the middle-aged, to the rising generation, they must repent and be born again. It's never too early to do it, you of the rising generation. It's never too late to do it, you who are the aged, both old and young, both bond and free. I doubt it was physical captivity he was talking about here, but the kind of captivity he described at the beginning of this chapter, this call to repent is meant for all who are bound and all those who might think they are free. The command, the call, the invitation to repent is extended to all of us because all of us need it. Verse 50, he repeats it. Thus saith the Spirit, repent, all ye ends of the earth. The kingdom of heaven is soon at hand. Yea, the Son of God cometh in his glory, in his might, majesty, power, and dominion. Verse 51, the Spirit saith unto me, yea, crieth unto me with a mighty voice. This doesn't sound like the still, small whisper we usually associate with the Holy Ghost. He is crying. He is raising a mighty voice. And what is his message? Go forth and say unto this people, repent. For except ye repent, ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of heaven. And scattered throughout all these calls and cries and commands and invitations to repent is a sense of urgency, of 60 seconds till the interview. We see it in 27. If you were called to die at this time. We see it in 28. Prepare quickly. And 29. Prepare quickly. We see it in 31. The time is at hand. And again in 36, the time is at hand. In 50, where we just read, the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand. The Son of God is coming. The glory of the King of all the earth, the King of heaven, shall very soon shine forth among all the children of men. There's no time to wait. In 52, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. How much time has to pass before the hewer can begin chopping? If it's harvest time, if this is Jacob 5 and the servant is being told to hew down the trees that are cumbering the ground of my vineyard. In my case, it takes forever to be able to start yard work. I can't find any of the tools that I need. Which of my children used one last and where did they leave it? But not in this case. The axe is right next to the root of the tree. Pick it up and swing. That's exactly what John the Baptist said to his audience. The axe is right there, and we need to repent right now. As he says in verse 56, another powerful adverb, those who persist in their wickedness will be hewn down and cast into the fire. The axe is right there ready to chop, except they speedily repent. Do it now. That is the invitation that the Lord extends to all. To see it repeated throughout the chapter, look at verse 34. Come unto me, and ye shall partake of the fruit of the tree of life. Yea, ye shall eat and drink of the bread and the waters of life freely. 35. Yea, come unto me, and bring forth works of righteousness. 37. To all you who have gone astray as sheep having no shepherd. A shepherd hath called after you. He is still calling after you. Will ye hearken unto his voice? 38. I say unto you that the good shepherd doth call you. Yea, in his own name he doth call you. 
that merciful name, that long-suffering name, that loving name, that name of Christ. 57, all ye that are desirous to follow the voice of the Good Shepherd, come ye out from the wicked, be separate, touch not their unclean things. Over and over in this chapter, he keeps saying to come, to come unto Christ. Verse 60, I say unto you that the good shepherd doth call after you. If you will hearken unto his voice, he will bring you into his fold. You are his sheep. You don't have to be the sheep of the adversary. You don't have to be part of the fold of the devil. You're not his children. He's done nothing to make you his. So stop choosing him. Choose Christ by responding to his voice. Verse 62, I love the way he ends this chapter. I speak by way of command unto you that belong to the church. Yes, I took off my political hat, but I still wear my religious one. And in the authority of my holy office, that priesthood order after the Son of God, I command you to do these things. Meanwhile, to those who do not belong to the church, recognizing that his would be a mixed multitude, I speak by way of invitation. I love that. To the church, you know you should be doing this. You covenanted to. You were baptized unto repentance. So repent. You said that you would. I reiterate God's command that you act according to your covenant. And to all of those who have not made one yet, I invite you to do so. I invite you to come and be baptized unto repentance, that ye also may be partakers of the fruit of the tree of life. I love that Alma is simultaneously speaking by way of command and by way of invitation. I think we need to do a lot more of both, especially the latter. To those outside the church, every chance that we can, just to speak by way of invitation, to be inviting in the way we talk about the church, to be inviting in the way we talk about repentance or change, the influence that the gospel has had in our lives, to always leave an open door for anyone who might want to enter, to speak by way of invitation. This is the message of Alma chapter 5. One other way to summarize it briefly, after asking this multitude of questions about the past and present and future, he begins inviting in verses 33 to 35. He lays out clearly the two options that are before them in verses 36 through 42. He lets them know how he knows which is the right choice in 43 through 49. He then asks if they will change or stay the same with this choice presented to them. That's verse 51 through 56. And he ends again with this call from the good shepherd to come unto him. And through it all, he emphasizes the mercy and long-suffering of the Holy Messiah, the coming of Christ, the King of heaven, who would very soon shine forth to bring them into his marvelous light. How were they to be delivered? Go back to the beginning. In verse 7, he changed their hearts. Exactly what Alma was after from the beginning. Have you experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Also in 7, he awakened them out of a deep sleep. They awoke unto God. They were illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. Now we saw this at the beginning. But come back to it here at the end. The end of seven describes being encircled about by the bands of death and the chains of hell. This is the captivity that they would need to be delivered from. But in nine, those bands were broken. Those chains were loosed. And notice the result. I love this at the end of verse nine. Yea, they were loosed and their souls did expand. What had those chains been doing before? Constricting them. And once the chains were broken, the soul itself could expand to full capacity. Have you ever felt that happen inside you? I usually have horrible posture. All those years of playing piano, it was like Hunchback of Notre Dame, just hunched over the keyboard. 
Sometimes we feel that way if we've been over our laptops too long, right? But what's interesting is if you've been hunched for a long period to the point that your back almost feels like it's stuck in that position. When you sit up straight and probably even feel some cracking in your back, or when you've been stooped over for so long and then stand fully erect, full stature, have you ever felt your spirit do that inside you? to shake off the chains that have been constricting you spiritually. The expansion of soul that he describes here is magnificent. There's actually a verse in Isaiah 28 where in his beautiful poetic imagery, he describes things as a bed that is too short to sleep on or a blanket that's too narrow to wrap yourself in. I love that mental image. I've got a brother that's like 6'9 or 6'10. I'm the, the runt of the litter, and I'm 6'1. But he has yet to find a bed that he can have both a headboard and a footboard. He's just too long for it. Or maybe you've tried to sleep on a couch that is just too short, and you cannot stretch to full capacity. Spiritually speaking, that's the chains of hell or the bands of death. Or that other analogy that Isaiah uses, the blanket that's too narrow to wrap yourself in it. You ever try to sleep with a blanket like that? It's like either your legs can be warm or your chest can be warm, but not both at the same time, unless you're in the fetal position. I remember getting out of the shower once and the only towel that was available was a hand towel. Just, just trying to dry off like that. In an Isaiah class I taught years ago, there was a convert student and I asked her about those analogies and asked her if they meant anything to her as a convert to the church. And it was beautiful to hear her description of being able to reach the full potential of her spirit when she found a bed long enough and a blanket big enough to wrap herself in, to stretch out on. That's the fullness of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Their souls did expand. And what did they do? with that expanded soul, and they did sing redeeming love. It's like those old movies when you see some poor woman that has to wear a corset, and they just can't breathe. There's no room for their lungs to expand. They can't even talk. Well, to be encircled by these chains and bands, no wonder we can't sing until they're loosed from us. But when those chains come off, those chains forged by our own foolishness, when they come off, our souls expand and we are able to sing redeeming love. It makes me think of that beautiful folk hymn written by a Baptist minister called, How Can I Keep From Singing? If you're anything like me, you may know the tune without having paid much attention to the words. That's, I'm always guilty of that. My wife knows the lyrics of everything. I just pay attention to the melody. But the words of that hymn, can you picture Alma the Elder singing this once Abinadi's words loosed him from chains? Can you picture Alma's people, Helam and the rest, singing these words once Alma's testimony broke their chains? Can you picture Alma the Younger singing these words after the angel has helped break these bands? And can you picture the people of the church in Zarahemla throughout all the land singing, singing the song of redeeming love because of their faith in the words that Alma the Younger has given them and the repentance of their sins that would follow? My life goes on in endless song, above earth's lamentations. I hear the real, though far off hymn that hails a new creation. That new creation is us, born of God, new image in our countenance, new heart changed by Christ. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? While though the tempest loudly roars, I hear the truth, it liveth. And though the darkness round me close, 
songs in the night it giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? When tyrants tremble in their fear and hear their death knell ringing, isn't that the devil trying to keep his sheep cringing in the fold? His subjects, his children, still encircled and encompassed by the bands and chains that he's made. When friends rejoice both far and near, how can I keep from singing? In prison cell and dungeon vile, our thoughts to them are winging. When friends by shame are undefiled, how can I keep from singing? These saints, no longer defiled by the shame of their sins, the stains on their garments, but garments washed white, purified, cleansed through the blood of Jesus. How could they keep from singing? There's no better use for the air that fills an expanded soul. And to any of us who have felt that in the past, who have felt the Spirit sit up, straighten up, stand up to full stature, who have felt an expanded soul and felt to sing the song of redeeming love, then verse 26 is our next, perhaps our final question. Now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced a change of heart, these were church members after all, if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can you feel so now? Do you still feel now what you felt then? Or have the chains begun restricting you again? What's your spiritual lung capacity right now? Is pride beginning to weave its costly clothing once again? Is it something we can take off and lay aside so it doesn't have to be stripped from us? Can we care for the poor? Can we avoid any semblance of inequality or persecution of others? Can we retain in remembrance sufficiently our own captivity and deliverance, sufficiently to know it can happen again? Can we keep singing right now? One of my best friends in high school, his father had a heart transplant at the UCLA Medical Center. I'd heard of such surgeries, but never knew anyone who'd actually undergone one until this good friend's father. And my friend told me that his dad would need to be on medication for the rest of his life to keep his body from rejecting what it perceived as foreign material. In fact, a more recent apostolic heart surgeon, not Elder Nelson this time, but rather Elder Renlund, gave an amazing talk in which he used this analogy of heart transplants as an example of the mighty change of heart. But the need to take constant medication to avoid this kind of rejection of foreign tissue. Can we feel so now? Are we maintaining and retaining the mighty change brought about by the word and our repentance? So maintaining the word, faith in that word, repentance because of that faith, when I think of the song of redeeming love and the need to be able to continue singing it, I often think of that beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, particularly because it speaks of being prone to wander. I feel that too. The natural man, even when we put it off, never seems to go that far away. That beautiful hymn was written by a man who'd lived a wicked life. He was prone to wander until he heard the word powerfully preached by the Reverend George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers of the 18th century. And the man turned everything around, repented, became a minister himself, and wrote this song. I was only familiar with the first three verses, the ones that are usually sung. There is a fourth verse that seems to promise a day when we will keep singing. The fourth verse of that song says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. 
clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realm of endless day. Isn't that what Alma is singing about here? Freed from sinning, broken bands and loosed chains, seeing thy lovely face, even seeing it within our own, his image in our countenance, his sovereign grace, because we've chosen to be his children, trusting our ransom souls to his keeping, being carried to a realm of endless day, illuminated by the light of Christ's everlasting word. I am so grateful for the changes within each of us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of Christ himself affect in us. It often takes asking and answering honestly within ourselves these kinds of questions. The simple fact that Alma asked that question in 26, if you've ever experienced the mighty change, do you still feel it? If you've sung before, are you singing now? Should serve as a warning to each of us of the ongoing need for continual conversion. Alma understood that, which is why in chapter six, once this life-changing sermon is over, he ordains priests and elders by the laying on of hands according to the order of God, to preside and watch over the church. In verse 2, they baptize unto repentance all those who repent of their sins and join the church. Notice the interesting order there, right? They repented of their sins and therefore were baptized unto repentance. You're into the process now. You're into that covenant relationship. Repentance leads to baptism, which leads to continual repentance. This is what the church is. Remember Alma the Elder learned that in chapter 26 of Mosiah? This is a perfect parallel to King Benjamin's address back at the beginning of Mosiah. Even the chapter numbers coincide. In Mosiah 5, these people's hearts have been changed. And so to help them maintain that change, in chapter 6, King Benjamin takes their names so that they can be watched over and stirred up unto continued repentance. Here, Alma 5, Alma the Younger has a similar life-changing message to that of King Benjamin. And in chapter 6, the church is there to help nurture that faith. Maybe that's why the scriptures so often talk about the choirs above, not solo singing. Perhaps we're better able to maintain those melodies when there are harmonies surrounding us. There is a clear division now between those church members who have begun again to sing the song of redeeming love, along with those new converts that have repented and then been baptized unto repentance, compared to former church members that decide either to ignore Alma's questions or to answer them in ways he had not hoped. Verse 3, those that do not repent of their wickedness, those that do not humble themselves before God, those that remain lifted up in the pride of their hearts, those were rejected and their names were blotted out, no longer numbered among those of the righteous. There needed to be a way of telling, not just, hey, we're all church members. In a place like Zarahemla, church headquarters, that's an easy thing to say. And cultural Christians and committed Christians all mingle together into one big mass. The church needed to stand out more clearly than that. And so there was a division. Names were blotted out. We saw that earlier in the book of Alma. Names of the unrepentant blotted, others withdrawing themselves. But to allow clearer lines of whose fold people were choosing to be a part of. That does not mean we give up hope on those who have chosen to withdraw themselves or even those who has, whose names have been blotted out. Because even with these dividing lines, the visitor's welcome sign is still prominent on the outside of the church. Verse 5, the word of God was liberal unto all. None were deprived of the privilege of assembling themselves together to hear the word of God. Because that's how it all begins or how it begins again, always through the word of God. 
all were welcome in verse 5. In verse 6, some were commanded. This sounds a lot like how Alma ended his sermon, right? If you're part of the church, you're commanded to do these things. If you're not, you're invited to. Well, he's inviting in five. The word is liberal to all. He's commanding in six. The children of God, those who have covenanted, they were commanded to gather themselves together oft, to join in fasting and mighty prayer in behalf of the welfare of the souls of those who knew not God. Of course, Alma the Younger would have faith in that. Isn't that what the angel told him? Part of the reason he had come was because of the faith and fasting and mighty prayer of his own father. Well, having left a church, a group of children of God in that condition, in the land of Zarahemla, Alma is ready to start going east and west and north and south to share similar messages wherever he can find saints in need of perfecting. The next one he meets is the church in the land of Gideon. And his message to them is magnificent. In some ways, the message to the people of Gideon which is Alma chapter 7, is even better than the message he gives to the people in Zarahemla in chapter 5. Because the people in Gideon didn't need the wake-up call that chapter 5 was to the people of Zarahemla. In some ways, you can see chapter 7 almost as a sequel to chapter 5, or what could have been if people were already living chapter 5. A message to the awakened rather than a wake-up call to those that were spiritually asleep. You see that clearly in verse 3, where Alma says to them, I have come having great hopes and much desire that I should find that ye had humbled yourselves before God, that you had continued in the supplicating of his grace, that I should find that ye were blameless before him, not in the awful dilemma that our brethren were in at Zarahemla. Now Zarahemla is doing fine, he says in verse 4. Chapter 5 served its purpose, but in verse 5, I'm hoping for even more joy over you than I had over them. Theirs came after affliction and sorrow. It was worth it, but that was a harder message to preach. For you, in verse 6, I trust that you are not in a state of so much unbelief as were your brethren. I trust you're not lifted up in the pride of your hearts, so I don't have to warn you about it being stripped of you. I trust that you have not set your hearts upon riches and the vain things of the world, so I don't have to warn you against worldliness, or wean you off materialism. Yea, I trust that you do not worship idols, but that you worship the true and the living God, and that you look forward for the remission of your sins with an everlasting faith which is to come. I had to revive all of those feelings among the people of Zarahemla. I trust that they're already alive and well in you. Sure enough, those hopes were fulfilled. In verse 17, he tells them that. I know you believe these things because of the manifestation of the Spirit which is in me. Your faith is strong concerning these things. And as a result, great is my joy. You see, in verse 18, drawing it back full circle to where he began, I had desire that you wouldn't be in the same dilemma as your brethren. And my desires have been gratified. You're exactly the kind of audience I was hoping for. Verse 19, I perceive that you are in the paths of righteousness. I don't have to bring you back to them. I perceive that you are in the path which leads to the kingdom of God. I can just stand back and cheer you on. Yea, I perceive that you are making his paths straight. I think that's Alma's favorite. It's not just that you're on the path, but that you're making those paths straight to make it easier for those behind you to follow. They're not just coming unto Christ. They're making it possible for Christ to come unto all. Well, if this is the kind of congregation that Alma dreamed of, if they didn't have to be stirred up unto repentance, but could be cheered on in their discipleship instead, then what message did he have for them? When I was young, I used to laugh that almost every talk that Elder Richard G. Scott gave in conference seemed like it was about repentance. He'd stare into the camera and tell us to repent. Maybe I just heard that because that's what I needed. But I sometimes laugh and think, I wonder what he would have talked about if we had repented. He gave some incredible messages about learning from the Lord, about how to acquire spiritual knowledge and to be truly divinely led. I would have loved to learn more from him 
about those kinds of things. I would have loved to have more Alma 7 moments with that great apostle instead of needing so many Alma 5 wake-up calls. What did the faithful get to hear from Alma the Younger? Look at verse 7. Behold, I say unto you, there be many things to come, but there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. For the time is not far distant that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. To both congregations, he is teaching Christ. But to see the promises here, what will Christ do as he comes among the faithful? Not just what he will do to deliver the captives who were not. In verse 9, the Spirit says to him, Cry unto this people, saying, Repent ye, and prepare the way of the Lord. Even the righteous need to repent. Remember his engraven invitation is to both the bond and the free. The first thing that the Lord will say in 3 Nephi 10, after the wicked have been destroyed and his audience is solely the righteous, is repent. We all need that. Repent ye, prepare the way of the Lord, walk in his paths. As we saw in verse 19, that's exactly what they're doing. For behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Son of God cometh upon the face of the earth. Now notice what he teaches. Some of the most profound teachings about the atonement of Christ we'll see anywhere in Scripture, and it's given to a faithful congregation of righteous saints. Verse 10, Behold, he shall be born of Mary at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers, she being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel, who shall be overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and bring forth a son, yea, even the Son of God. Now, I said this message was about the atonement. It is. It's an Easter message. But Easter messages typically start with Christmas messages. In our lesson from Abinadi, that's why he taught Christology in order to help us understand soteriology. Christology, the study of the nature of Jesus, Son of God and Son of Mary, to understand soteriology, the study of the atonement. There's no Easter without Christmas. There's no atonement without incarnation. There is no Messiah without Mary. And so just as King Benjamin mentions Mary in his discussion of the coming of Christ, Alma the Younger does the same. It was his divine and human dual inheritance that allowed Jesus to perform the atonement, which we'll see in verse 11 through 13. He shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. And he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, those same bands that he talked about in chapter 5. He will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now I spoke about these verses in the lesson that we made for Easter, called the Awful Arithmetic of the Atonement. This was part of the addition of that arithmetic. And I talked about my nemesis as a young kid living next to Magic Mountain, Six Flags, in Southern California. That cartoon cutout that put his hand out at the beginning of the line that said, must be this tall to ride. I hated not being tall enough to get on. That was the minimum height requirement. And once I met the minimum as a child, I thought, I'm good. I can ride anything I want in this park. I can stop growing. Now, I'm glad I didn't max out at 54 inches or whatever it was. But the principle was true. Once you hit the minimum, there's no need to continue. Now, I have wondered if there was a minimum suffering requirement when it came to Jesus. According to Jacob in 2 Nephi chapter 9, the minimum would have been sin and death. Those were the two deaths that Adam and Eve brought upon the human race. Physical death and spiritual death. Death and hell, a two-headed monster, according to Jacob's description. To be the Messiah then, Jesus would have to suffer the sins of all humanity and suffer death for all, that he might overcome death. But I wonder, if that's the minimum, why did Jesus do so much more? Look at the verbs in verse 11 and 12 and 13. Over and over, it's take upon him. He did take upon him. 
It wasn't forced upon him by the Father. His was a voluntary offering, a submission of the will of the flesh to the will of the Spirit. But to ask for these additions, to take upon him more than the minimum, we saw the list, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations, and multiply that by infinity, since it's of every kind. He took upon him pains and sicknesses. Yes, 12 says he took upon him death. And 13, it says he took upon him sin. So yes, he met the minimum. He did what was required of him. But so far beyond it, he took our infirmities. And why did he do it? Verse 12 says that his bowels may be filled with mercy so that he could know how to succor his people according to their infirmities, according to what we are going through. This is the gift of perfect empathy. What did we gain from Gethsemane? Atoning grace, forgiveness, redemption. But what did Jesus gain from Gethsemane? Understanding, empathy, a perfection of his perfect love. So he would know what we're going through. I wonder if the only thing he felt from us was our sin and the price that was required to redeem us from them. If the only thing he felt on our part was death, I could picture if it were me getting angry and yet to see Jesus ask, take upon him. I don't just want to feel what they did. I need to feel what they felt about what they did. I need to know the weakness that went into this the strength of their temptations and the weakness of their will. I want to know it all so that I'll love them instead of being angry, so that I'll understand them, so that I can help them, so that my preparations can be full. To some degree, yes, he would have known that. He was omniscient after all. That's what Alma seems to suggest at the beginning of verse 13. Now the Spirit knoweth all things. But that's just the spirit knowing it. That's what Elder Maxwell called the cognitive. That's me understanding what my wife is going through in childbirth just because I've read what to expect when you're expecting. That knowledge is not knowledge at all. At least not on the level to truly empathize with someone. To have compassion, come meaning with, passion meaning suffering. To become a fellow sufferer with us so that Christ's bowels could be filled with mercy and not just justice that, yes, I met those demands. Mercy. I want to meet those demands because I know what they're made of now. I know how they feel. That's why the phrase, according to the flesh, keeps coming up in verse 12 and 13. He wanted mercy according to the flesh. He wanted to know according to the flesh. So that in 13, the Spirit may have known already cognitively, but the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, experientially now, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions. Interesting that sins and transgressions was the last thing he listed. As if this request to feel pains and afflictions and temptations and sicknesses and infirmities was preparation for him to be able to react to and respond to our sins and transgressions with nothing but mercy, love, a desire to succor us. That is the power of his deliverance. And that is the testimony that's in Alma and hopefully the testimony that's in each of us. If it is, if we understand just how perfectly Jesus understands us, then how could we deny those engraven invitations? How could we not come unto this fold, not just of the good shepherd, but of the best shepherd that's ever lived, one who laid down his life for his sheep, one who joined them in their mortal pasture to understand everything that we go through. If that is the testimony which is in us, then how can we keep from singing? Or in 14, 
How can we keep from repenting and being born again? Yes, even the faithful need that rebirth. Even the righteous people of Gideon need to be changed by Christ. If we're not born again, we cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So come, be baptized unto repentance, that you may be washed from your sins, that you may have faith on the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world, who is mighty to save and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Like I said earlier, both the people of Zarahemla and the people of Gideon are getting messages about Jesus Christ. But the focus for the people in Zarahemla is Christ as shepherd. And to the people in Gideon, it is Christ as Lamb of God. There was a little more lion in chapter 5 and a lot more lamb in chapter 7. A lot more calling us to come into his fold in chapter 5. And a lot more laying down his life for the world in chapter 7. Verse 15, yea, come and fear not. What would we possibly have to fear from a Messiah who has perfect empathy for each of us? It's why the book of Hebrews says to come boldly to the throne of grace, fearlessly to come boldly. Why? Because we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was tempted in all things like as we, yet without sin. He knows our needs to our weakness. He's no stranger. He gets it because he gets us. So come boldly. There's nothing to fear from someone who knows our situation even better than we do. Lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you, which binds you down to destruction. Yea, come and go forth, show unto your God that you are willing to repent of your sins and enter into a covenant with him to keep his commandments and witness it unto him this day by going into the waters of baptism. Doesn't that sound like Alma the Elder at the waters of Mormon? Well, like father, like son with these two magnificent missionaries. If you do this, verse 16, and keep the commandments from thenceforth, again, this is a commitment from this moment on, the same will remember that I say unto him, yea, he will remember that I have said unto him, he shall have eternal life, according to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which testifieth in me. Well, this invitation continues at the end of the chapter. After having congratulated them, as I shared earlier, that they had met and exceeded Alma's high expectations, he says in verse 22, Now, my beloved brethren, I have said these things unto you that I might awaken you to a sense of your duty to God, that you may walk blameless before him, that you may walk after the holy order of God after which ye have been received. This isn't them receiving priesthood. This is priesthood receiving them. Verse 23, I would that ye should be humble, not stripped of pride. Be submissive not compelled to change. Be gentle, not hard of heart. Be easy to be entreated, full of patience and long-suffering. Being temperate in all things, important to include that among all the others, since sometimes our lack of temperance makes it very difficult for us to put up with people that still need a chapter 5 talking to. Being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times, Another thing that needs to be coupled with that same temperance, that we might have patience for people who are not yet keeping those commandments. Asking for whatever things you stand in need, both spiritual and temporal, always returning thanks unto God for whatsoever things you do receive. I love that last phrase. Our gratitude is just a returning of something that belongs to God to begin with. It's the one leper out of ten who returns to give thanks. Verse 24, see that ye have faith, hope, and charity, and then ye will always abound in good works. Best of all, those good works will be performed for the right reasons. He then says in 25, kind of this final parting blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep your garments spotless cleansed, purified, washed, well, now kept, kept 
spotless. So that once again, you can feel like you're in good company with fellow servants who have been washed before you. To sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the holy prophets who've been ever since the world began, having your garments spotless, even as their garments are spotless, in the kingdom of heaven to go no more out. My beloved brethren, oh, I wish that we could hear this from a prophet as he concludes general conference. I have spoken these words unto you according to the spirit which testifieth in me, and my soul doth exceedingly rejoice because of the exceeding diligence and heed which ye have given unto my word. If we will respond more speedily to the Alma Fives, we will be prepared to receive the kinds of messages of an Alma 7, which then concludes, and may the peace of God rest upon you, upon your houses and lands, your flocks and herds, your women, your children, according to your faith and good works, both of which result from a changed heart and a spiritual rebirth. May they continue from this time forth and forever. Thus I have spoken. Amen. My dear friends, wherever you happen to be along this spectrum, Alma 5 to Alma 7, anything in between, the process of coming into Christ, the process of this spiritual rebirth is the same. It is opening ourselves to the redeeming word of God, exercising faith in that word, repenting of our sins, and covenanting to continue to do so. So have you, have I, been spiritually born of God? Have we received his image in our countenances? Have we experienced this mighty change of heart? Have our souls expanded? Have we felt to sing the song of redeeming love? And do we still feel so now? The fact that you're even watching and wanting to let the word of God have its effect in your life is a good sign that you are in the paths that Alma described to the people of Gideon. May we continue to make those paths straight for other people who are just as deserving of this mighty change of heart and just as anxious to allow it to happen. Thank you for studying with me today. Until next week, may your faith remain unshaken. <laughs>